Welcome to Tile Talk. This is your host Shamana Kalamangalam. Today we'll talk to a specification writer and get his thoughts on specifying ceramic and porcelain tiles in commercial projects. To ensure the owner's requirements are met, the design team develops a complete and coordinated set of construction documents that clearly communicates the requirements of the project to the builders. The construction documents are both graphic and written. The drawings take care of the graphic part. The written documents are found in the project manual. The technical specification document is an integral part of the project manual. It's an instruction from the owner about the work activity that is required to produce a specific and required work results. Statements prescribing materials and methods and quality of work are part of this document. The details that an architectural or product representative provide is very vital for the products to be specified properly in Division 9 of the Master Format Specification document. Today, we will talk to a senior specification writer who's been specifying products in healthcare and other large commercial projects. We'll get his insights on the key information that is required for specifying ceramic and porcelain tiles. Having worked with prestigious firms like Parkin Architects, WZMH, and Perkinsonville, he has a very good insight on project demands and product requirements. He now teaches at Sheridan College and continues to offer specification services through his firm. Let me welcome Just for now to the show. Welcome to the show, Just. Uh thank you, Shamana. How are you? Well, I'm doing good, Just. Given that you specify hundreds of products in a project, what are some of the key technical information that you look for while specifying ceramic or porcelain tiles? Um yeah, that's a very good question, Shamana. Um I think that the specification writing process has to occur in um almost a dialogue uh with the designers uh because ultimately uh I try to translate what the designers want into something that is buildable and that is durable. Um so I start with making sure that any specification or any product that I write in my specification adheres to industry standards like NCA 108, uh NCA 137 or the ISO 10545 for example. Um as that gives us a as a minimum uh set of requirements for what essentially what the characteristics of that product would be whether it's a porcelain or mosaic or a ceramic tile then i think that any product product with good characteristic is only as good as the installation so then i also look for um at ensuring that you know those products are specified to be installed with um ttmac details and ttmac inst- installation materials with um adhesives and mortars that are basically provided and produced by renowned manufacturers so that that would kind of like be my thought process or my my general specification process for putting together um a porcelain tile or ceramic tiling do you specify or look for any sustainability criteria as well in this part of the specifications Uh yes, absolutely. Um we uh, a lot of my clients are very dedicated to sustainability and I also am a big believer in sustainability. I have um 
written my uh, lead AP uh, BD plus C examination in the past. Um, I'm also mm -hmm. a well-certified um, member. So wellness and sustainability are, are, are essential to the process that we do. So uh, we definitely look things for like uh, we look for things like environmental product de declarations, health product declarations, uh, making sure that some of the materials that we specify, especially when it comes to the mortars and the adhesives, comply with uh, low emission guidelines like the California Department of uh, Public Health guidelines. Uh, so yeah, sustainability should be a key part of essentially every section, but most importantly for telling. Now, I also want to add that, you know, as much as we like to talk about sustainability, uh, it should be a key component or should work in tandem with durability, because there is no point in specifying a material or choosing a product that has all the great sustainability checks, as I like to call them, but will wear off in two years and will need to be replaced. Uh, in that sense, um, TAL is a great sustainable or durable product because when you look at good quality ceramic or porcelain tile, there have been some installations that have been around for almost <laughs> centuries, I should say. So, you know, in that sense, not only do we want to get all the check marks for all of our submittals and all of our data sheets, we also want to basically select inherently durable materials. When you're looking at the sustainability, what happens when a substitution is presented to you by the installer or by the contractor? How far are you willing to compromise or do you still stick to the sustainability requirements? I think it depends. Uh, specifications writers are often put in an awkward position where um, we are looked at um, to be the authority on certain things, but we don't necessarily have the decision-making power. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I, I can only give my opinion Mm -hmm. uh, on certain things and try to convince the designer or the owner that this is this is the way to go but i cannot necessarily you know firmly stand my ground on anything because ultimately i'm not the decision maker so in that sense i do have substitution procedures in my specification there should be a way through which installers are should go about you know pro providing a substitution often i ask them to ensure that you know whatever the substitution they're making mm -hmm. also has the same sustainable characteristics and you know that should be accompanied by you know data sheets and um, certifications and whatnot and you know a lot of times that also serves as a deterrent to you know substituting That's for the right. sake of substituting yes, um, yes. because then they have to gather all the information and then they're like oh okay maybe we don't have that maybe we should just stick to what was specified. <laughs> That's kind of direction is what I see what most of the installers do. I mean, they stay away from trying to switch if they're not able to meet the sustainability criteria many a time. Exactly, because nobody wants to get in trouble. Nobody wants to tell to be told that they have to take it down and reinstall it because they didn't meet the requirement. That's right. One last question when we are on sustainability part. The documentation was kind of requested at a later stage of the procurement, but now we find that installers have been requesting documentation much before as they are submitting samples for approval. Is this something that has been initiated by you as a specification writer and the architects and the clients? I think so. I think that it's also through 
experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, you, you only learn from bad experience. Because, yes, you're right. Like, at first, you know, sustainability documentation was kind of like part of the closeout documentation. Okay, well, make can you, like, now that you've installed everything, can you tell us how it's sustainable? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that what has happened is a lot of times, you know, when something was installed and was actually not sustainable, sometimes for products that are seeking, you know, certifications like LEED or WELL or what have you, um, if it's not caught early on, Mm -hmm. then it just gets installed. And at that time, it's too late to take it down or to do anything about it. And what happens is that, you know, then it can actually cost the owner, you know, a LEED point or two. Uh, which can, you know, on some buildings, you know, if you're aiming for a lead gold building, you know, you might end up with a lead silver building, and that might not be what the owner has promised the developer. And, you know, it has its own set of um, issues. So I think that as a, um, as a way to be more careful and to be more proactive, that information has been moved to the submittal requirements where, hey, let's just make sure that we screen this through before it even gets installed so that if there's any issue with it then we can you know catch it nip it in the bud kind of thing so i think that's that's why you're seeing that change and i think that it's a good change because um it's it stops us from having to fix expensive um, issues later down in the project that's right what about products having antimicrobial properties i think the the jury is still hung on that one. Um, even though there has been some very good research in light of this um, coronavirus pandemic, that has essentially demonstrated that, you know, antimicrobial properties can be, a lot of times can be almost like a gimmick. Oh, okay. uh, because they tend to, you know, anything that you add to a product to make it quote-unquote antimicrobial, um, if it's something that's added to the product, the assumption is that eventually it's going to wear off and, you know, the product will not behave on day one as it did on, you know, day 100 kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is uh, to essentially try to specify inherently to products that are inherently easy to clean, mm-hmm. um, easy to maintain, um, easy to wipe down without necessarily relying on an additional product or an additional coating um, to make it antimicrobial. So I think this is where a lot of the firms that I work with, especially like the big healthcare firms, are going towards. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're looking for products that are less porous, that are denser, that are easy to clean, so that even if the bacteria were to essentially uh, get on it, it wouldn't have a food source, so eventually would starve and die, Mm-hmm. Or, you know, on the next round of cleaning, it could be easily wipeable. What about manufacturers, uh, let's say setting cement manufacturers, claiming that their product raw material mix is able to provide the antimicrobial properties? Would that work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, I mean, there, there are objective tests out there. Like, you know, I think there's like ASPM G21 that's about um, mold growth and... Um, you know, microbe growth on certain products. Um, but again, like those are those those are done in you know very controlled lab environments or very specific kinds of um, agents. So I think that you know we should all look at you know well what are we really really specifying and can we get away from having an additive because anything that we add to the product 
can also ultimately become toxic to the users if you know like it adds to the vocs it adds to the chemical makeup it adds to all these things so if we could try to get the product as close to the raw material as possible and to get a product that is as inherently antimicrobial as possible that's where we should be going towards now is it always practical no absolutely not but I, I'm just saying, like, you know, in terms of end goal, that's mm-hmm. where we should really be going in terms of, like, um, uh, selection of products in, in healthcare environments. Thanks for uh, clarifying on the antimicrobial properties. Now, when you detail installation information, what standards mm-hmm. or recommendations do you refer in your specification document? My gold standard has always been the TTMAC mm-hmm. um, guidelines. Okay. So this is, I mean, like this is what we go by. We feel that this is an industry understood and approved um, document that has a lot of authority in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Where we can't get information from from TTMAC, like we tend to rely on some of the the American counterparts, mm-hmm. like uh, the... National Terrazzo Manufacturers Association (NTMA) okay. maybe, as well as the NC standards. But as far as possible, you know, we try not to make things up. <laughs> you know, we try to <laughs> go like by <laughs> um, things that are approved, that are recognized in the industry. Everybody does it this way. You know, we try to list things that we tend to, you know, we care about, but that contractors don't necessarily always want to do, always want to follow. You know. Things like, you know, how often should you put your control joints in your tiling? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's like a shaded or an exposed to sunlight um, application, you know, they, what percentage coverage should you have when you're back the tile? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is crucial to a long-lasting information, but, you know, too often just gets ignored or just overlooked and then mm-hmm. results in, in, in issues. To, um, we always try to keep ahead of like the TTMAC tile installation manual and try to refer to it as, as much as possible. When you are uh, detailing installation information for a large or small format tiles, what do you normally specify? Do you refer to TCNA or TTMAC? Yeah, I think um, uh, TTMAC generally, as I said previously, but I, I found that, I mean, like the biggest challenge I've had with, been with even defining what is a small format tile and what is a large format tile, mm-hmm. everybody seems to have a different definition. So mm-hmm. when you say, okay, this should go by, you know, this is what you should do for a large format tile, then, you know, this subcontractor's definition is different from that other <laughs> subcontractor's definition. So, you know, one thing that we've done in our specifications was just saying, okay, well, this is what we define as a small format tile. This is what we define as a large format tile. And once we have that, then it's very clear in the specification because I find that a lot of times styling specification can be a mumbo-jumbo of all the materials that are out there and all the mortars and all the adhesives and then it just becomes a pick and choose for the subcontractor mm-hmm. uh, but when you write a specification with intent then you can say okay well i really want this great this great style setting material for these kinds of tiles because you know i understand that there's price premiums i understand that there are um, not every mortar is made the same but you know if i can define what a large format tile is then I can specify a more expensive non-sag mortar specifically for that 
large format tile, or I can specify an uncoupling membrane for that large format tile. Mm -hmm. But you know, if I just have an uncoupling membrane in the spec, you know, right. then the contractor can start arguing with me, well, where do I use this? Do I use it here? Do I use it there? Or, you know, so mm -hmm. I try to specify an intent and I think that the, I don't think the industry has come to a definition mm -hmm. as to what is a large format tile yet that has seen consistent across the board. So mm -hmm. I just called it over a, uh, a foot in each dimension. I mm -hmm. consider that a large format tile. And once you go with that, then, you know, here are the products that you should be using for installing that, that, that particular type of application. So you have a much better control, you can say, what you're expecting in terms of installation from the installer. Exactly. And hopefully, you know, that can also control the price because they're mm -hmm. not just throwing a number at it. Like they are, they're bidding with, with a little bit more information than just guesswork, right? Okay. You know, these slabs have been in the market. You know, these uh, thin uh, porcelain slabs, which are from one and a half meter. I mean, they go up to three meters. They are the six millimeter thick slabs. Mm -hmm. Have you specified those tiles to be used on the floor? I know ANSI came up with some uh, recommendations. Have you looked at uh, specifying that? Not specifically, but I mean, from what you're describing, like I would, I would probably want to put an uncoupling membrane uh, below that been set latex modified mortar um, to make sure that like I have a, a good good installation uh, but like you know interior designers and designers throw new things at us every day and you know we have to be able to deal with it all right let me just move on to the next stage in your specification is what you look at is the warranty and maintenance information mm -hmm. what you want to specify or what you look forward from the tile suppliers? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, for as far as maintenance goes, um, I think that a lot of it has to come from the owner. Mm -hmm. uh, we try to help the owner out by, you know, asking for, you know, a minimum, you know, 2% paddock stock um, in the stack. You know, we start with that, but some owners want less, some owners want none, some owners want more. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's a kind of maintenance information that, uh, like maintenance materials that we ask for mm -hmm. um, in terms of um, operation and maintenance manuals and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah, we, we definitely ask for, you know, closeout submittals to be submitted uh, with the telling on how to properly clean it, how to keep it in, in good condition. And that usually gets submitted at the end of the project. Uh, we also ask for the TTMAX maintenance guide for for porcelain tile in our spec, so the supplier would would submit that with their final submissions. Mm -hmm. um, now, when it comes to warranties, um, I, I have been uh, fascinated with these new warranties that have come from uh, basically setting material manufacturers uh -huh. who will warrant the entire assembly, especially on waterproof assemblies. They will say, okay, well, we'll warrant it from the slab up including the tile that this will not, you know, fail in the next 10 years or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm a fan of that just because it kind of like points the finger in one direction in case anything were to get wrong. Um, but obviously a lot of these things sound really good on paper um, until something actually goes wrong and then like the fingers start getting pointed in different directions. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, I mean, I don't want to rely on a warranty to basically support 
a good installation. I'd rather have a good installation and no warranty than a good warranty and no installation. The warranty really to me is just gives me confidence that whoever provided these products or provided that installation has confidence that they will, like they have done a good job. Um, but doing a good job starts with having a good set of construction documents, um, starting to, with having like good dialogue with the installers uh, when they're on site through the contract administrating process. Mm-hmm. And also um, it, it goes a long way to like, you know, having conversations with uh, product suppliers and understanding how these products work and what are the best, you know, setting materials for those particular products and for the particular applications um, that you're using them in. Because there's no one size fits all approach, unfortunately. Right. Yes, yes. So you kind of have to, you know, treat every project, you know, differently and try to, like, you know, find unique solutions for each project. I know that uh, we all call on you when we visit your offices. Right. Is there any other information that you would like to share with architectural and design reps? First of all, I would like to say thank you to you guys. Um, because I, I think that for, at, at least for a spec writer, um, you guys are our lifeline. Having a good technical rep that's available, that's able to, you know, give you information in a timely fashion is indispensable to like, you know, properly specifying or pro- for me to properly do my job. So I think that, you know, like, first of all, I want to say a big thank you to you guys. But yeah, in terms of information, um, I mean, I would only say that, like, I find that a lot of times, you know, people tend to want to sell their products even when it doesn't fit a certain application. And that becomes a real turnoff for, you know, spec writers like myself, because, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times, you know, you have a great product, but you don't necessarily have a solution to everything. That's so, you know, knowing where your product fits and where your product doesn't fit um, will earn you a lot of respect because then you can say, hey, you know what? I think this is a, this my product will fit greatly here, but you know what? I don't really have a product for this other application. Have you tried this other company? And it could be your competitor, but, you know, right. this is you recognizing that, you know, you don't have, a one-size-fits-all, like you don't have a product for every single application that is out there. And, um, you know, uh, you helping us out as well. And we'll remember that, right? Like, so we'll remember that the next time we're writing a specification, the next time we're trying to specify a product for something where your product fits, right? So that that would be the only piece of advice that I'll do. But, you know, most product reps that I've uh, met have been great, have been very honest, have been very helpful and have me introduced me to more people and have helped grow my network. So, oh. you know, as I said, thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Just. So thanks for sharing your insights on specification of ceramic and porcelain tiles. We look forward to having you on the show sometime soon. Yeah, I would love to be back. It's important as a tile representative to work and share information with specification writers to detail the technical characteristics of the product, installation, and of course, maintenance information for a product to be specified clearly in the important technical specification document. That's it for today. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Shumana Kalamangalam. Our show theme music is by Kevin MacLeod. missed anything or if you would like to know more please email me at info at tiletalk.ca 
please visit my website tiletalk.ca for previous and latest episodes. Please subscribe to the feed on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Podbean or your favorite podcast player of choice to get the latest episodes. Your questions and opinions are valuable. I look forward to your feedback. Thank you for listening to Tile Talk.